this is where I love where on a podcast I can actually get a chance to sort of deep dive a bit nerdier on on this um, as opposed to sort of keeping it broad. So it's great. Green green light on that one, Adam. <laughs> yeah, talk talk nerdy to us. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, we have a, a full slate today. Andrew's back from the uh, the woods or the, the vacation that he was on, and uh, I'm very excited to welcome Adam Karen of Zero Friction Cycling to the show as well. Uh, he's uh, an individual that we've been uh, trying to get on the show for a little while. Uh, it's because um, those of you who've listened to us talk about um, – aerodynamic drag which of course we drone on for quite a bit of time we talk when we talked about the buckets in aero drag and we talked about one of the buckets being drivetrain drag and in those conversations we've always assigned that just a just a, a standard value of two percent two percent of your energy goes to drivetrain drag end of story and uh, of course adam is uh, adam's here to to dispel that myth for us um and to and to share uh his his knowledge and his insights into the the whole world of drivetrain drag, and there's uh, I'm certain that there's a lot more to it than than I think, and maybe you, the listening public, think. Um, but uh, before we do that, so Adam is, uh, as I mentioned, the founder of Zero Friction Cycling, and uh, their kind of uh, claim to fame is the fact that they're uh, they're really an independent uh, drivetrain friction testing facility. They also have a retail side that Adam may tell you about, um, but they're, um, as far as I know, the only one out there that is an independent lab doing these tests. So that's why we wanted to have him on the show versus somebody like you know, a representative from Ceramic Speed, nothing against them. They make, I'm sure, a very high quality product, but we wanted somebody with, uh, without a, uh, an obvious connection to an existing line who's, who's selling their stuff. So mm-hmm. with that kind of long preamble, Adam, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. And uh, why don't we start with a little bit of, uh, of your history, who you are, how you got, why is it that you're spending your days thinking about drivetrain friction and, uh, and doing all these tests? Yeah, no, firstly, thank you very much for having me on. So it's always really a, a pleasure to get to sort of talk about my little niche sphere of uh, focus so um yeah any sort of opportunity to try to help get some some great knowledge out to uh all the guys and girls out there trying to save watts and save their drivetrain wear so yeah thanks for the the invite onto your great show um and yeah really i sort of started because i i took um i sort of mostly from a, a corporate management background and um was mostly in, in sort of process improvement roles so um just always sort of like to try to find areas where things aren't as, as great as they should be and, and make them uh, a lot better. And large companies tend to have quite a few systemic issues, so there's there's sort of never short of any work there. Um, and I had a, a career break when uh, my wife and I had uh, had our little guy, um, so I took a couple of years off paternity leave um, and, uh, yeah, had a great time um, sort of playing there with a career break. But really noticed that um, I, I guess at that stage that uh, friction facts had been bought out by ceramic speed and uh, friction facts had sort of started a lot of I guess that sort of first insight work into what was happening in redrive train friction with the outright efficiency testing that uh, that they were doing on chains and lubes and bearings and so on mm-hmm. and um, I just felt 
pretty passionately just on you know as a as a sort of at that stage quite a nerdy cyclist myself that there really needed to be an independent test facility and there really wasn't one um, and there was a lot more I wanted to know so I wanted to know what happened uh, once the lubricants leave the lab um, and you know when you start riding you know on the road or on the trails um, and you know in wet conditions so so how does how does that change things because yeah an outright efficiency number is great but it really only tells you a, a small part of the the overall picture. So, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, with, with there not really being anything, couldn't and couldn't see that anyone was going to step into that space and, and you know I guess do it to the level that I wanted it to be done. Uh, decided to just um, yeah have have a go, and uh, so I spent a lot of time working on the actual main test uh, protocol itself because obviously that's pretty critical if the test is not going to tell us what we need to know then then we're sort of not going to be very successful from the start and also testing is quite tricky to make economically viable so um you know not many people really want to pay um to get reports behind a paywall and so on so i needed a way to make that in you know the test information really as open as possible so um i i use the testing to decide basically what to what you know what are the genuine top products to then stock on the zero friction cycling retail side so I've got the, the, I guess, the two components to the business. So the one is the testing, and we pretty much ploughed away on that side for a long time. Started with just pretty much a single lubricant product that I knew was extremely good, and then over time, as as the testing has continued, and we're sort of well past three hundred thousand kilometres of controlled testing now, um, then the products have have expanded. As you know, we've we've found, you know, more and more products that have, um, you know, proven themselves to be outstanding. And what's what's been really exciting, especially really over the last sort of, I guess, eighteen months to two years, is that uh, a lot of major manufacturers now have really stepped into the lubricant space. They've really, um, you know, I guess, focused a lot of R and D resources into bringing a great product to market because there just is that it's a, it is a real low hanging fruit area for, you know, what savings and and with the benefit of saving you a lot of running costs as well. So. You know, we've just seen some some really brilliant product releases in the last couple of years. So we've got a lot of options now to ensure that you know we're running a really sort of day in day out low friction, you know, low wear drivetrain that you know these options didn't exist really not that long ago. So um, and really since I guess the testing side has become I guess more uh, widely known out in the the cycling world. Then I've also been doing now a lot of testing, uh, sort of private testing for um, a lot of the major manufacturers who obviously really want to have that independent hmm. um, backing. So they, they've got their own, they may have their own testing um, and or doing their own field testing in conjunction with that. Um, but, you know, anyone who's, any manufacturer who's releasing a product, even if their claims are 100% true, read the performance, obviously it's always taken with a pretty big grain of salt. So... Um, having uh, an independent body to be able to either help back, uh, obviously what their performance claims are is is obviously yeah, really helpful for them. Or if something comes up and there's a bit of an issue, there's a lot of times where something will come up in my testing because it's quite exhaustive uh, that hasn't come up in their own and they can go back. And uh, yeah, there's been a number of times where, you know, a tweak's been made to a product during development and then retest and then, then it goes out to market. So so getting inside with um, yeah with the major manufacturers on that has been been a lot of fun. You know, it never ceases to amaze me. Um, you look at these areas where you think there's so much R and D done uh, from inside a company, and there just there's not uh, maybe not the effort or 
effort isn't the right word, but not the, the validation externally. And um, the fact that you're coming in here is fantastic, but you look at other parts of the cycling world and I mean, we've got aerodynamic performance claims for everything, yeah. um, but there's very little external uh, verification and mm. pretty much any component you look at, it's just, there's such a need for this arm's length third party testing. And it's fantastic to see you step up and, and fill that gap because it's, it's so needed. There's so much misinformation out there. And yeah. most of it is just, you know, marketing BS basically. But uh, some of there's, there, there is truth to it, but being able to wade through the, the fluff is extremely important as a consumer. And I think you do a huge service to be able to, to provide that information to people. Oh, thank you. No, I think you're thinking, I guess, exactly how I sort of was thinking about five years ago when I when I started. I just um, really felt that it, it needed to be done because um, there's, I mean, once one manufacturer starts to claim um, a whole bunch of wonderful um, attributes for their lubricant, everybody really follows that. So, <laughs> uh, and pretty much, so you'll see all the lubricants claim a lot of common, um, you know, wonderful performance things such as, you know, they... Uh, repel dirt, dust, and grime, and they clean as they lubricate, and they form a high-strength film or membrane that prevents metal on metal or contamination on metal contact. And um, you know, once one you know starts that, then basically everybody does that. So you pick up any bottle of lubricant, and they're all claiming all these wonderful things. And you know, some of them you know will will come to I guess somewhere near reality on those claims but a lot of them really a lot of lubricants get nowhere near those claims so it is extremely difficult for consumers to um mm -hmm. to, to know um you know unless I've sort of been looking at the the independent testing and research and you know the nothing against the local bike stores or online publications but um you know the other thing that used to really get to me a lot were a lot of the reviews um you know with the online or or physical bicycle you know publications you, you just cannot tell from riding a lubricant a couple of times if it's genuinely low friction and low wear. You just don't get any, you know, tangible data. So you mm -hmm. can find some, of, you know, astoundingly glowing reviews for some of the proven worst lubricants um, out there. So, you know, um, <laughs> it's just very difficult product to, you know, to review without being pretty precise, uh, read how you're assessing it. And... Um, the other thing as well is that really there, I, I think the general population or general public probably don't realise that, you know, the vast percentage of lubricants that they're buying as bicycle lubricants are really just going to be a rebottled and rebranded, you know, lubricant from a major industry player. Mm -hmm. They're not specifically developed for a bicycle chain to be ridden outside. So they are just a lubricant. Interesting. And this lubricant may perform you know, okay in whatever it was initially developed for or just as a general purpose lubricant. But a lot of the times it, it is going to be, you know, quite likely in more of a sealed environment uh, and not so exposed to contamination. So mm. it, it's perfectly fine, I guess, as a lubricant, but on a bicycle chain completely exposed with so many moving parts, uh, which are really under quite high load due to the, um, the small size of the parts, um, once you start to get some contamination that, that's that's sticking to it, they they just don't become a great lubricant anymore. So they very quickly change from just being that that you know nice lubricant out of a bottle to something that's more of a, a grinding paste. So um, you know the difference between lubricants like that, which is you know quite a lot of those on the market, versus lubricants which really have had a huge amount of you know resources and development put into them. 
um, and have gone through a huge amount of testing um, for them to be a high-performing bicycle chain lubricant. You know, they're specifically developed to be a great bicycle chain lubricant and remain a great lubricant on your bicycle chain you know, as you're sort of riding it day in, day out as well. So there's a huge gulf between those and, and that's where we start to see the, you know, really the differences that show up in my testing between the, the wear rates. Before we lo- jump into the lubes, because I do think that's a really important part of the conversation, um, I want to take a little bit of a wider view uh, and talk about mm. uh, to the maybe the uninitiated, although, you know, generally, probably the, the majority of the, the listeners to the show uh, have a very good idea of what uh, drivetrain looks like and what what to do and what not to do. But I think I want to I want to make sure that we're, we're covering those bases. Mm-hmm. And so from uh, again, from that, that wide angle view, uh, what what does it look like when we have a really, you know, worst case scenario in terms of uh, drivetrain lubrication and, and a best case scenario. And I'm asking for, for yeah. if you have them, and I imagine mm-hmm. you do, for actual numbers. So, you know, watts at a certain, yeah, let's say watts at a certain speed, although really it's chain speed, which is relative to cadence. And so speed is not very relevant, I imagine, to uh, to uh, speed, to uh, uh, resistance. So what, what are we talking about? Best case, worst case, and maybe okay case. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, we do actually have a, a fair bit of um, numbers on that. So, uh, I guess best case would be that if you've got, say, a, what's called a fully optimized chain. So this is a chain that has had an initial break in, uh, you know, run with a factory grease on, uh, gone through a whole bunch of ultrasonic cleaning rounds, um, a super fast either wax or um, some of the latest, uh, you know, greatest chain coating lubricants like, say, UFO drip applied. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's a wax, the wax will be typically, um, you know, for the best case scenario, also ultrasonically applied. And then you have a wax break-in run to get the wax to its sort of optimal uh, point. Because the top waxes, they actually um, polish to a really, I guess, yeah, they self-polish to a very high sheen coating inside the, so all your parts are, are coated with a really super slippery solid coating of, of lubricant. Um, and that, that, that happens over usually about a sort of 20 to 30 minute break-in run. Okay. Uh, and so your, your absolute top products are sort of coming out um, again and chain is important as well. Some chains are fast, some chains are not. Uh, but best case scenario, uh, you know, we're sort of seeing numbers around the, you know, sort of 2.8 to 3.5 watt loss mark. Um, and the top lubricants are fairly easy to keep training wise in sort of a, a 5 to 6 watt loss mark um, as opposed to say your fully optimized race chain at around that, uh, yeah, sort of We'll call it sort of three watts on as a, as a, as your ballpark, which uh, and this is at uh, two fifty watt load is what they're tested at for the the lab that can do efficiency testing. Um, on average, so I guess uh, you would say that your general just sort of random wet lube off the shelf that people are riding around, um, they're going to be realistically anywhere between your sort of eight to fifteen watt loss mark, um, depending if they've chosen a really good wet lube um, and what their maintenance levels are versus if they've just chosen something that's quite poor, it gets really abrasive really quickly. And some of the worst lubricants, uh, we're literally talking, uh, we've had some tested that are around, you know, one in particular was was over 19 watts before it, it had to stop uh, the test because it can actually damage the, the instrument <laughs> sensors. So, that's, like yeah. a, that's like a gator skin. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, a, a completely yeah. unlubed wow. chain is, is normally in the sort of 20 to 25 watt mark. So if you hear those chains that are, uh, sometimes you, you might be coming up on a cyclist on the road and you can hear their chain squeaking from about 100 metres away. So if a chain is squeaking <laughs> yep. completely devoid of lubricant, yep. they're typically in sort of the 20 to 25 watt mark. Uh, and so, yeah, some of the worst 
uh, lubricants can actually be sort of getting getting up to that you know near twenty watt loss mark. And the the important takeaway, one of the biggest what about factory lube? Yeah, factory lube. So I mean, it's actually not uh, terrible. So there's been this has been one of the biggest misconceptions I've been trying to battle for a fair while. Um, and not helped by some major media, uh, which have actually sort of put out videos saying that one of the worst mistakes you can do is to remove the factory grease. Um, so it's it's one of those things where it's it's not in itself terrible. So they used to be worse than they are now. A lot of the factory greases have have improved a lot over the years. Uh, they used to often be in that sort of you know seven to ten watt loss range. Uh, now they're they're sort of you're looking a lot of them are going to be around the six to seven watt loss range. So not terrible, but the the thing is that is that they don't match the top lubricants. So they're obviously still a, a few watts short of your top lubricants um, that you're going to be able to choose from. But the the main thing with the factory grease is that they are a contamination magnet, so they will very quickly become you know quite oh, abrasive. Mm. So uh, that's that the main issue with the factory grease is that if you leave it on, you're going to have a very dirty. Uh, abrasive chain quite quickly especially if you're you know gravel cx mountain bike um but even on road there, there's there's more airborne dust uh than you would think out there which is why things go very black and uh abrasive quite quite quickly even for uh for road riding um and the factory grease just doesn't really mix with most of the top lubricants so a lot of the top lubricants are uh, i guess a wax base or a chain coating type uh lubricant and you just can't mix them, mm-hmm. you know, with a, a mineral oil factory grease. You're just going to end up with a horrible, gunky uh, mess. So, so really, always the advice is is absolutely the first thing you should do in every case is clean off the factory grease and run with a proven top lubricant choice. And there are some, you know, proven ones. Be it a, if you like to stick with wet lubes or you're going for a chain coating type lubricant. Which and the difference between a chain coating type and say a typical wax emulsion lube, like say a squirt or a smooth is what I call a chain coating type lubricant. They are still a wax-based lube. So they are still a wax with some friction modifiers in a water-based carrier or sometimes water and alcohol. Um, But the difference is they set to basically a solid coating. So they're trying to basically mimic immersive waxing out of a bottle. So even though they are officially a wax emulsion lube, I refer to them as a chain coating type lubricant because they set to a solid as opposed to a semi-solid. So... um, in those areas, there's a reason why pretty much all of the fastest lubricants and all of the lubricants that demonstrate the lowest wear are pretty much always either an immersive wax or a wax-based lubricant, um, and they they just yet yeah, don't mix with a obviously a factory grease. So yeah, um, there was a video uh, by a major media or YouTube sort of channel not that long ago that that put out there that the number one mistake you can make is to clean off the factory grease and last check i think that had about three hundred and twenty thousand views so <laughs> there's tens of thousands of cyclists oh, that are wow. probably following that advice and and uh yeah very quickly getting themselves uh you know an abrasive did it, did it have three so, letters in its name uh <laughs> had four uh it was the the off-road version of that so <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh, I see. Yeah. So, um, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So, even worse yeah. for advice for if you know if it's a if it's a mountain bike channel uh, to tell people to leave their factory grease on a chain that's going to be going right. off into the world of dirt and dust because you're just mm-hmm. going to have an abrasive paste masquerading as your chain lubricant in pretty short order. So, um, yeah. So, <laughs> oh, no. 
and, and yeah, this is, I guess, one of the, the biggest win-wins with focusing just that little bit of time on your chain lubricant and, uh, you know, which sort of choice you're going to go down and, and the maintenance dependent on that choice is that um, the watts you save. So if you keep your chain at, say, your training chain and say that five to six watt mark as opposed to letting it get to, you know, eight, 10, 12, 15 watts, which is pretty easily done with a lot of the lubricants off, off the bike shelves, Mm-hmm. The watts you save are literally watts that were previously going into eating through your chain and drivetrain components that much faster every pedal stroke. So if you're running a 5-watt chain as opposed to a 10-watt chain, every single pedal stroke, that's 5 watts of energy you're saving that's now pushing you forwards further as opposed to 5 watts of energy going into eating out your lovely group set. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a very big win-win, you know, unlike, you know, often – when you go for those sort of friction savings in other areas like tyres, tyres, fast tyres are often more punch resistance. Time trial grease in your bearings with a 25% fill need a heck of a lot more maintenance. There's often a, a trade-off to go for these speed upgrades. Yeah. With your chain, by ensuring it's low friction, you get that massive double win of saving yourself a ton of drivetrain wear at the same time. So uh, it's one of the you know true few you know genuine uh, you know win-win situations in cycling. So yeah a lot of reasons just to focus on that yeah i guess what is what has been not necessarily a very sexy topic but becoming much more so these days which is which is great well i know that uh, if i were able to add 10 to 15 watts to my ironman pace i would be very happy yeah um, so that's absolutely yeah, are you the guy that we can hear from 100 meters away with the dry chain <laughs> not quite maybe maybe if you're um i think my rule is if you're able to hear my chain you're probably drafting but uh <laughs> <laughs> somewhere around there anyway but yeah. it's uh no it's it's surprising that there's that much loss and mm. and i guess that kind of leads to to my next question is what is actually happening like where is this friction going what causes friction in a chain and mm. why do the lubricants matter yeah and that's that's a great one so this is where i love where on a podcast i can actually get a chance to sort of deep dive a bit nerdier on on this um as opposed to sort of keeping it broad so it's great Green, so the, green light on that one. Yeah, yeah it's great. So, <laughs> yeah, talk, um, talk nerdy to us. Yeah. So if we're talking, say, uh, yeah, the, your large chain ring, if you're doing, say, 95 cadence in, in your large chain ring, you're going to be looking at, you know, sort of somewhere around about the sort of 40,000 chain articulations per minute as you're pedaling. So there's a lot of action happening with your chain. And your chain, so every articulation, um, you've got eight, pieces of separate sliding surface friction going on so you've got obviously two inner links so your two inner link plates are sliding over the pin so your your pin is fixed that's riveted to the outer plate so when your chain articulates you've got your two inner plate links that articulate around the pin so those that you've got two inner plate link balls that are articulating around the pin and then you've got a roller sitting on top of that which is what um, is obviously sitting on top of your chain ring in cog teeth now, the roller, it's a bit of a funny name. The roller is actually held static when it's in contact with your chain ring teeth. It doesn't actually roll. It's it's held static by the by those teeth under load. And so those inner plate link shoulders are actually going to be articulating inside the roller ball. So there you've got another two um, sliding surface friction uh, contact points there. And those four are really your high load uh, contact points. So that uh, the pin to inner plate link shoulders um, or inner plate link ball, sorry, and the inner plate link shoulders to your roller, they're taking your direct rider load. And they're very, very small parts. So the pressures on those um, 
those parts is very high. Like it can literally be in the thousands of psi pressure. Uh, then you've got the side of the roller uh, on each side to the side of the inner plate link. So there's another two there. So now we're up to six. And then we've got the inner plate uh, to the outer plate link on each side of the chain, which takes it up to eight. Uh, now the side of the roller to the side of the inner plate links and the inner plate link to the outer plate link in a straight chain line, those areas are under very low load. So they'll be having very little impact on your chain friction losses um, with a straight chain line. But the load will increase on those parts, obviously the greater the chain line angle. So if you're running sort of big, big, then you're in introducing a lot of loading now onto those surfaces as well. Uh, and that's why you run a higher, you know, friction losses when you're on a, on a greater chain line versus straight. Um, and so within that, uh, so I guess there's the, I guess the action that's happening. So if you multiply sort of 40,000 by eight, then you, you're up to 320,000 individual pieces of sliding surface friction per minute. And so that's where if you, if you take your, say, let, imagine your chain is running on this beautiful, silky smooth, super fast lubricant and everything's sliding magnificently, then you've got this lovely, you know, uh, smooth, fast chain. But with so much action happening, if, you know, you add even a little bit of contamination into that lubricant, a little bit of contamination, so you've now in, in, you know, increased the friction of your lubricant by a very small amount, but you multiply that very small amount by 320,000, it becomes something tangible. And so as your lubricant becomes more and more uh, contaminated, then you know, that, that increase in uh, friction and abrasiveness multiplied by 320,000 pieces of sliding surface friction per minute uh, on average uh, pedaling away in the big ring, then you very quickly, you know, you, your chain will go from obviously 5 watts to 6, 7, 8, 10 watts, so depending on what lubricant you're running. Um, and so what makes, I guess, a really fast chain, so I guess the other components that uh, when manufacturers are, are can, you know, trying to develop a really fast lubricant, so you've got your high pressure uh, friction that you need to take care of on those main load um, uh, pieces that are under you know, very high pressure from your pedaling load due to the size of the parts. So the lubricant does need to have quite a high um, you know, pressure strength there that it's not going to allow the metal on metal contact under that load. But also you want the lubricant to be uh, not have what's called high stiction because the links aren't just turning around like a bearings. Every articulation you've got eight sliding surfaces that need to get moving from static, turn a bit, and then stop. And then they're going to reticulate back. Um, so they're going to articulate around, so your chain ring, then reticulate back off the bottom, articulate around your pulley, uh, lower pulley, reticulate back to straight, same again on the upper pulley, same again around your cassette. So all the time the links are moving, you've got eight pieces of, uh, of you know sliding surface that need to move from static to moving. Um, and as we know, it takes more friction or more energy to get something moving from static than it does once it's actually moving. So stiction ad actually adds up to a bit when we're starting to look at outright efficiency. So this is where you start to look at what's making a lubricant come out at, say, uh, 3 watts or 4 watts. It's going to be, you know, stiction is going to be a component of that, even if they uh, demonstrate the same wear rate over time because their high-pressure friction is, you know, let's call it equal and their contamination resistance is equal, then little things like stiction will really add up and also even viscous friction. So this is where, you know, pretty much always the wax chains and your, your chain coating type lubricants uh, tend to be the fastest is because they're a solid, so they have no viscous friction. You can imagine if you 
were to put a motor oil on your chain, you're going to have outstanding high pressure friction, but your um, your viscous friction is going to be quite high. And so is that going to add, you know, a watt or two watts to your chain's efficiency, you know, literally because of that viscous friction with all those pieces, you know, whizzing around through your drivetrain. So, yeah, so there's all those components. So there's, there's actually a, there's a lot of action happening and uh, little differences very quickly multiply out to a tangible difference in, in your losses. So when we're looking at the evolution between chains, we've got, you know, however many years ago, seven speed chains or even mm. fewer up to 12 speed chains. Uh, we're now basically getting the same force over a much smaller area because the yeah. chains are narrower and we're trying to squeeze more gears in there. Yes. Um, has that had a significant impact on the development of lubricants and the required lubricants? Like, are there different recommendations you'd make for a seven speed or a lower speed versus a 12 speed chain? Yeah, probably the main impact. So as the speeds have gone up, the the chain tech has actually improved a lot as well to sort of go with that. So chains have actually become a lot faster uh, over time. So I guess in conjunction with, um, uh, you know, as as the group sets have progressed up the speeds, the the metallurgy and the coatings and treatments that uh, the top manufacturers are using on their chains has... I guess, increase over time along with that. So, for instance, you know, Durace 11-speed chain is, is going to be vastly faster than what they had in the 7- and 8-speed days, and it's going to be longer-lasting. Probably the main um, thing that has happened, though, is that as the parts have become a lot smaller and the, I guess the gaps between them tighter, is that some lubricants do have quite significant penetration issues. So there's not really a, a pathway um, between, uh, you know, for the lubricant, lubricant to get to your chain's pin deep inside the chain between the inner and outer plate link because um, there's actually a bit of a chamfer on the inner plate link um, where it's riveted to the pin. So the lubricant will actually just run around the outside of that chamfer. It won't actually get to the pin. So the only access to your chain's pin, which really needs the obviously the lubrication because that's under the, the, you know, the really high pressure load, is it's got to get past the sides of the roller between your inner plate uh, link and then there's a teeny tiny gap between the two inner plate shoulders um, for that lubricant then to get through that tiny gap and onto your pin and then disseminate across the pin to lubricate the whole surface. So wet lubricants typically don't have penetration issues, so they will tend to get into your pin just fine, even if they're quite viscous, the, the wet lube will still work in there quite quickly. Uh, some of the wax emulsion lubricants, so uh, this has been quite a typical problem for your squirt and your smooth uh, lubricants like that, they really, really have trouble getting into the pin. So, uh, and this is something that, that I've tested six ways from Sunday. So every time um, when you apply those lubricants as per the manufacturer instructions, always the initial wear rate is really high. You can't feel it when you're riding, but you can measure it um, you know, accurately in the, in the wear rate. And then it actually improves um, quite dramatically as it at a certain point when it finally gets down into the pin. And if those lubricants, same lubricants are applied via immersive application, uh, we don't get that initial high wear rate at all. So it's sort of like a bit of a double blind check that you know if you apply squirt or smooth immersively, you start off with a really super low wear and really low friction chain. And the outright efficiency testing that was done by uh, Friction Facts and also is now done by Ceramic Speed that continued on the same testing, um, they apply the lubricants immersive because they're they're taking if they're they're not they're not testing for initial penetration issues they're testing for you know how fast outright is this lubricant 
Uh, whereas in, in my testing, I do obviously test for whether or not lubricants have any initial penetration issues or not. So that is sort of part of the test, uh, the test protocol or test suite that we do. And so lubricants like that that wouldn't really have, say, had an issue back in the, you know, if you had an 8-speed chain or a 9-speed chain, definitely starts to become an issue with 10, 11, 12-speed chains. They, they are really, really hard to get in there. So, um, you know, if you're using that lubricant uh, and you're not immersively applying it, then there's actually, to do a, a good job, there's a fair bit of faffing around with, you know, uh, heating up the chain, heating up the lubricant just to, to make it, um, you know, easier to try to get in there. So, and that can really impact if those lubricants, um, you know, are going to be sort of really high maintenance for you or not. You know, if, if, if you're a road rider and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're very good, they're, you know, really low friction and they um, will stay low friction out on the road for uh, a long time because they do have very good contamination resistance. But um, if you ride in the wet, they can become very high maintenance because water is your transport medium to get contamination deep into your chain. So the, uh. you know, the, the best lubricants in the world, so your top waxes that set to a solid coating, um, your absolute black graphene, uh, your squirt, your smooth, all of these lubricants that are setting to a lovely sort of, you know, either solid or semi-solid coating that's very contamination resistant. Water is going to bring that grit off the road or off the trail deep into your chain. It's that great transport medium to bring it in. The contamination is then pressed into your set lubricant coating. And from there, it's effectively landlocked. It's, it's not going anywhere hmm. unless you remove it. So post-wet ride, you know, what level of maintenance do you need to do uh, to reset your chain back to um, low friction again? So wet lubricants, that typically involves flushing it through with a whole bunch of solvent. Wax emulsion lubricants like your squirt and smooth are really hard work because you need some solvent to get these waxes off and then you've got to do a whole bunch of faffing around to either negate those initial penetration issues or do an immersive application with that lubricant which is really the best best way um, whereas your really highly refined waxes like your molten speed wax your silka hot milk super secret trip ufo um, the base wax that they use is so refined it doesn't really have any mineral oil content you can actually reset them extremely well just with boiling up the kettle and flushing it through with boiling water and that'll melt off that wax uh, coating um, dry the chain and then you can reapply those lubricants and your ufo drip your silk super secret drip oh. they have zero penetration issues so maintenance if you often ride in the wet they have a shorter lifespan in wet than uh, squirt and uh, smooth but the maintenance after a wet ride is vastly easier so there's sort of a bit of a pro and a con there so yeah, if, if you ride often in the wet, um, there's a one oh, of the misconceptions cool. to, uh, yeah, one of the big misconceptions I'm, I'm often myth-busting because it's on a lot of sort of podcasts and uh, talk of lubricants and forums is that waxing and wax these sort of wax-coating lubes are really only good if you ride in the dry, that they're, they're you know, not suitable for wet riding. Whereas in reality, it's, it's like, the, the trade-off is they don't have a huge lifespan in the wet, so you do need to do something with the chain, obviously post-wet ride, and you need to make sure that um, your wet ride is not going to exceed the treatment lifespan of that lubricant. But they last long enough, it's, unless you're doing a really, you know, multi-hour uh, long, you know, very harsh conditions wet ride, they're going to last just fine. Um, but really after that wet ride, um, when you look at, at the end of the day, you want to get that chain back to low friction because if you don't, there's you, you're going to pay the piper one way or the other. You're going to pay the piper with a little bit of time and maintenance post wet ride to reset it. In which case, those very refined wax lubes 
are the easiest to reset post-wet rides. So in my view, they're the number one pick because they're so easy to reset back to near zero contamination again. Or, um, you know, your, your other lubricants are going to be a lot more work. So wet lubricant, it's litres of solvent to flush through. Uh, smooth and squirt are a bit of a tougher clean and then a tougher um, application afterwards. So it's it's more work there. Um, and at the end of the day, a lot of people, I guess, if they you know, if they're not going to take care of their chain post-wet ride by making sure they're resetting the contamination, you're going to pay the piper with, you know, your next ride in the sun um, are going to be pretty much like you're still riding in the wet because that contamination hasn't gone anywhere. Um, so you're going to pay for it in your, you know, friction in your chain and your drivetrain wear. So hmm. the claims by lubes that they clean as they lube, so if you think that you're just going to drip more lube on and uh, your chain is going to be lovely clean by the lubricant, that's really not happening, um, and that's something that you can anyone can very easily test themselves. Um, you know, do a solid wet ride, and then take your chain off and get out your sort of solvent and see how many bars it takes before the solvent stops coming out black and starts coming out nice and clear. <laughs> and normally that takes, depending on what lubricant you're using, that's going to be somewhere between probably two and four liters, literally, to get that that solvent from not coming out black and so you think okay if i'm adding say even if it's say 10 mil of a wet lube back onto your chain that's less than 0.1 mil per link you know how much flush cleaning is that really going to do um so and the answer is not a lot so yeah that just doesn't make any sense no so so you can just add uh you know lube back over the top of your chain post wet ride but yeah, you are going to pay for it if you don't do the reset. So so your lube consideration really should take into account obviously your type of riding. If you only ever ride in the dry and on the road, then yeah, like a wet lube, a really good wet lube is going to be super easy maintenance. Um, whereas if you always ride in the wet, uh, consider what you need to do really to keep that chain low friction. Because when you think about it, obviously it's, it is actually an extreme lubrication challenge. Um, and not many people really get into the mindset of, what's going on uh, out there and, and how many other, uh, you know, components out there in, in the world are under such a, a lubrication challenge like that. You can, you can imagine if you took the seals off your bearings. So a lot of people, as soon as they feel their bearing going crunchy and gritty, they go, geez, I, I better get that sorted out. This is, this is no good. I don't want to be riding on this really yeah. high friction, gritty bearing. Um, so if you took, if you took the seals off your wheel bearings and the seals off your bottom bracket bearing and, uh, did a couple of rides out there in the wet and you felt your bearings, they're going to be feeling pretty horrible. They're going to be feeling gritty and notchy and <laughs> obviously wearing out yeah. quite quickly. And most people would go, geez, I'm going to take care of that. But they don't pay any mind as to what's happening with their chain, um, what's going on with my component that's working orders of magnitude harder than my bearings um, and is now got something quite abrasive that's that's running as the lubricant. So, um, yeah, so not... A lot of people just, I guess, they underestimate what they need to do post, you know, wet or harsh conditions rides to reset. But getting their head around that um, in their lubricant choice uh, is, is obviously a pretty big deal for their running costs. So, um, yeah, and with the um, with the testing that I do actually have uh, so that the wear correlation results from all the, uh, the lubricants that I've tested in the dry contamination blocks, the wet contamination blocks and the extreme contamination blocks, I do actually model out the cost to run for those mm -hmm. lubricants um, based on the performance so that if someone is just using that lubricant and just re-lubing straight over the top, um, what does that sort of add up to? So 
they can sort of see straight away. Well, for my type of riding, if I ride gravel or mountain bike or always in the wet, um, you know, what's my cost to run going to be if I'm, if I'm doing that? And the difference can literally be thousands of dollars per 10,000 K um, from your good loops to your average loops. So that's, that's wow. a fair bit. So yeah, this is where. Because of the component wear? Absolutely. So it takes into account the, uh, the cost of the lubricant, the usage rate, and then obviously all the component where if you chain cassette and chain rings and, and the cost of those. So, um, and this is where what's, I guess, accepted as normal. A lot of people, there's still a lot of, in my view, I guess you call it sort of more or less complacency. It's kind of like people drip a lube on their chain, it goes black. Um, somewhere around 5,000 Ks, they replace their chain and maybe their cassette. And that's viewed basically as pretty well normal behavior. Um, and I guess part of my sort of, uh, goal with, with zero friction cycling is to say, look, there's a much better kind of normal. You can get vastly longer, you know, drivetrain and component lifespans, which can literally add up to running cost savings well, well over a thousand or more per year. And it's kind of like, do you want to spend that on that new helmet you're coveting or glasses or overshoes or other kit? Or do you want to spend that money just burning through your drivetrain components faster because you didn't pay attention to something like your lubricant and you know, the maintenance type that should go with that lubricant. So, yeah, so that, that's sort of a nerdier dive there. Oh, it's lo- it's amazing. Um, but I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to put you kind of, well, not on the spot necessarily, but, uh, I have a, a very practical question. So let's say you're, uh, you know, you're, you do most of your own bike maintenance or at least your chain maintenance at home. And, uh, you're not going to, uh, ship a chain over to South Australia to have it broken in and, uh, and the lube applied or to our, our friend, Dan Bigham, who does that through, mm. uh, through watch up or yep. through any of those guys who do like such a, such a high quality work. If you're just going to yep. do it at home, you're going to buy a chain. Yep. Um, if you can find one, cause in, I don't know, in Canada, they're, they're mm. like the unicorns. Now you cannot buy a chain, yeah. oh, um, but you know, you, you find, you, <laughs> yeah, you find a chain, um, yeah. and you, you buy it and you bring it home and you're super yeah. excited to slap it on a bike but you also let's say you don't have an ultrasonic cleaner mm. uh, that you're also going to dedicate to to uh immersion waxing it um so if you're kind of on the maybe lower investment in in ho- home workshop kind of yeah. side but you still want to do a really good job of uh of initial uh break-in installation and then maintenance mm. uh and i think you you've got a lot of these guides on your website and uh listeners yes. of course i'll list i'll link all of those and adam mm. maybe you can send some to me so that i can provide the links in our show notes yeah um so then for for the details you want to go there so maybe high level what mm. do you need and what's the procedure for uh for doing that yeah, it's it's a lot lot easier than most people would think. So even I'll start with I guess the immersive waxing. That's what I want to hear. Um, yeah, because uh, a lot of people think that immersive waxing is is hard. Um, it's it's so so uh, easy. Um, and once people have done their first couple of rewaxings, then you know they're they're off and running. Um, and and all the time, yeah, the feedback I've, is I've, I've done it. I've done it myself, and yeah. I'm not I'm not super technical. It was actually after yeah. reading your guide because um, a listener of the show and a friend uh, Pierre Facompre sent it to me mm. uh, like a year ago, and he's like, "Yeah, just read this. It's not hard. You can do it yourself." And yeah, uh, I can yeah, vouch for that for the fact that immersion waxing is not too bad. Is not too too bad. No, and so I'm a, really a fan of this uh, this yeah. line of questioning here because. Uh, I've got a race coming up, uh, yeah. potentially fairly soon. Um, so this is something my, my old chain is hurting. Like it's, um, yeah. it's something I've been training on for a long time. I clean it when I ride outdoors, there hasn't been a lot of outdoor riding, uh, yeah. this year, just because of various factors, uh, smoke being one of them in mm. Western Canada has been pretty yeah. bad. Yeah. But, uh, 
it's it's something I'd like to replace. So this is super mm. relevant information, and maybe uh, you know, following these instructions, we can do a follow up uh, yeah. after I go through this process as a complete newbie and someone who doesn't. I understand <laughs> yeah. the the science behind it, but I don't understand the process. Yeah. So, so I mean, Adam, this is a secret yeah. of ours for running the podcast is that we're actually, what we're the reason we do, we do this podcast is because we want free advice from really smart people. So the way we trick them into giving us free advice is we invite them on this podcast and they tell yeah. us this thing and we ask the questions that we want to know about, like how do I wax my chain? And then they give yeah. us this amazing advice and we don't have to pay for it. And that's, that's the, that's the con over here. No, it's great. Well, we all get to enjoy the benefits of the con over. So uh, yeah, since I uh, obviously found out about your podcast, I've been uh, enjoying that that uh, free advice on many other topics from the uh, the great guys you've had on and uh, great girls. So um, yeah, like whether you're going to the immersive waxing part or simply a great chosen uh, or proven um, lubricant, be it wet lubricant or chain coating type. Uh, so you don't absolutely you don't need an ultrasonic cleaner. So there's I guess the first thing is just to clarify there's a big big difference between a fully optimized race chain and the effort and labor that's involved in prepping a fully optimized race chain versus just your standard prep, which is getting your brand new chain, um, putting it through some uh, solvent cleans to get the factory grease off, which is yeah, stepped out in the, the guide. It's super easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's moving to what is your chosen top lubricant. Um, don't do a, an initial break-in um, if you're not doing the ultrasonic clean because that will bring in more contamination that will offset any benefit of doing the break-in. So you just, if it's, unless you're going down the path of doing a fully optimized race chain uh, yourself and you've got the sort of the, the equipment to do so, uh, you skip the break-in, you literally just, just clean the factory grease um, off your brand new chain. And once that's cleaned off uh, as per the instructions, which are really easy, then it's just moving to your chosen top lubricant, be that uh, popping it in a pot and turning a, a switch from off to low to melt your wax, which is really easy. Uh, swish it around, hang the set, and then you pop it back on before your next ride um, or yeah, moving to a, a top lubricant, uh, choice. So, so it's, yeah, anyone who's got that new chain, you just follow those steps. Um, whether you're going down that, uh, waxing path or just top lube path, it's super, super easy. And yeah, step one, always remove that factory grease. Um, and yeah, you don't need a break in. You don't need an ultrasonic at all. You'll get a super good clean just, just by off bike in the container method. So, uh, I'm a, I'm a, big proponent of off-bike, on-bike cleans are always, you know, then just not quite going to do the same job as off-bike. Off-bike, you're going to flush your solvent right through, um, but it's super easy to learn how to pop your chain off your bike and um, and get it into a container to uh, to do a proper solvent clean off. And it's something that everybody should learn, same, same as everybody learns how to change a flat. Yeah, of all of my bike tools now, the, the quick link pliers probably get yeah. more use than anything else that's in my, in yeah. my shop drawer right now. Yeah, Definitely absolutely. a worthwhile investment. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, because popping your chain on and off is something that everybody should learn um, exactly the same as learning how to change a flat because a lot of times, so when we get a bike in the shop to switch over to waxing, I pop their chain off. They've been running drip lube for obviously, you know, the, all the time before. Uh, they've been avidly racing. Uh, you pop the chain off and straight away you feel their bottom bracket is like, whoa, that feels kind of like Fred Flintstone made this bottom bracket and one of the jockey wheels is, is barely turning <laughs> and it's stuff they just they never ever notice because they've never taken the chain off and it sort of creeps up because things deteriorate over time and so they just don't notice that you know their bikes become a fair bit more draggy than what it once was and you reset it back and it's like oh my god you know this bike feels amazing now so because i've got a new lovely chain and they've also got bearings that turn so um you know popping your chain off periodically 
uh, one for maintenance and you know if you're waxing you're popping it on and off all the time for a rewax and it just gives you the chance to do that 20 second check where you can spin your crank spindle with your finger and make sure as it's spinning nice and smooth it's not running dry you feel very quickly if it's spinning easily but it, it, you can feel if the bearings are dry so you know you know if you need to regrease them you can quickly spin your jockey wheels make sure they're spinning light and free um, you can spin your back wheel and just hold the axle without the free hub noise in there. You can feel if your back wheel bearings are silky smooth or if they're going rough, that there's, it's like a 20 second check that you can do uh, when you pop your chain off and you make sure that you're, you know, everything is running lovely silk lightning on your bike as opposed to, you know, have, having gone, you know, not great and you haven't mm -hmm. noticed. So yeah, it's something that, that even if you're not waxing, get into the habit of doing that um, uh, anyway, because it's, yeah, it's just a, a lot of people are avidly racing on things that really aren't turning fantastically. So yeah, so step one is is uh, is yeah with the, with the cleaning of the chain, it it really is a lot easier than people think, and just get into that off off bike clean. And the other really, I guess the big big tip that we always tell for people that are racing is, you know, whether you're you're waxing or whether you're going to invest in a fully optimized race chain or not, you should absolutely always obviously have a dedicated race chain. And training chain, you know, nobody at any sort of decent level is going to rock up to a key race on the same chain they've just hammered out their last, you know, training block on. Because even on the best lubricants, you know, the the chain is just working so hard and in such a, you know, a, you know, completely exposed, it's still going to drop efficiency, you know, as the thousands of kilometres clock up. You know, your low friction coatings are going to be compromised. Mm -hmm. Even small amounts of wear in the components is going to affect its efficiency. So. You know, it just makes absolutely no sense to, uh, you know, rock up to a, to a, especially a key race on the same chain that you've just been hammering uh, in training, and it costs you no more. You know, sooner or later you are always going to need another chain, so you're just pre-buying one chain because when it's time to move your training chain on, your dedicated race chain moves over to be your next training chain, and you're just buying one new chain as per normal to be your dedicated race chain, and so that's just a super easy, you know, tip. And then your race chain. You know, whether whether it's waxing or whichever lubricant uh, choice you've gone, it makes it really easy when you've got a dedicated race chain to keep that chain absolutely mint, you know, in between races. So if it's a long race like you've done Ironman 180K, then you'd do like a full reset of that chain and get it back mint ready for the next race. If you're racing some crits, you can, you know, be able to go two, three, maybe four races easily on your dedicated race chain, mm -hmm. then do a full reset back uh, of, you know, the contamination and you know lube or wax and you know back to mint again so that your race chain is just that it's you're keeping it right down in that sort of three four watt range so um yeah that's that's a, a key one as well so you mentioned you mentioned reset so obviously that's cleaning and, and recoding yeah. so the two obvious questions are how often and and how right like how do you do it and and how often do you want to do it and you, you mentioned every other every iron man if you're doing yeah. that distance so about every couple hundred kilometers then so yeah it depends again on the lubricant a bit so if it's uh if you're immersive waxing then it's literally as easy as um as just popping it um off the chain oh sorry off the bike and uh, into your wax pot now, if you're being really good on the immersive waxing front, um, again, it's really smart just to have a dedicated uh, race wax pot and a training pot. And literally, the, the pots cost like $16 for a, for a slow cooker here in Australia. And like a small slow cooker from Woolworths cost $16. Mm -hmm. I think crock, pot, crock pots in America cost about the same, $16, mm -hmm. $20. So for the whole investment extra of <laughs> of $20, yeah. And again, you're just pre-buying that one bag of wax. Like a fraction of a chain cost. Yeah, and so... 
you know, with a wax chain. Uh, so if you if you want to be super good, so here's a, I guess, if you want to be, uh, and again, not worrying about ultrasonic, if you want to do an absolutely brilliant reset of your immersive wax chain, so your M-Speed wax or your silk or hot melt chain, pop the chain off uh, when it's time to reset it. If it's, you know, sort of post that, you know, a couple of hundred kilometres of racing, um, give it a boiling water flush rinse to uh, to get rid of the, the bulk of the, the wax that may have some contamination in there, dry it, pop it in a bit on of UFO Clean. So UFO Clean is a um, 100% uh, percent environmentally friendly um, cleaner that's also made for wax uh, chains, so for cleaning wax lubricants. So pop it in a bit on of that, let it soak for five minutes, shake it, rinse that UFO Clean out uh, with boiling water again, dry the chain, and pop it in your dedicated um, race pot of wax. And that way that, that pot of wax is staying super clean. Really no contamination is getting into that pot. Mm. And it just follows the same process. So when you when it's time now to move on your uh, training uh, pot of wax, so you've done your sort of typical 30 re-waxes that you should do on your training pot, which is about 10,000 Ks of road riding, your race pot of wax moves over to be your um, training wax and your fresh bag of wax goes into your race pot. So again, it costs you no more. You're just pre-buying one bag of wax and a whole sort of investment of an extra $20 for that extra pot. So it seems for some people like, oh, man, i got these two pots. This is getting pretty crazy. But in reality, it's it's really, you know, when you think about it, it's, 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 uh, it's just a very, very smart way to roll. And a lot of people will start with just like the one chain, one pot, and then they sort of will just then take the next step uh, when they're ready. So... Um, now, if it's not an immersive wax, so if you're using, uh, say, chain coating lube, so if it's a really fine lube, refined lube, like, say, your Silka SS Drip or UFO Drip, uh, again, you can do the same reset. Uh, so boiling water flush rinse, then your UFO clean, boiling water flush rinse again, uh, dry, and then you're just reapplying that lubricant and you're back to mint. So super easy clean and uh, yeah, you're not, not having to use any harsh solvents. If it's... Um, your squirt, your smooth, or a wet lubricant, you are going to need to bring in solvents um, to, to really give those a proper clean uh, just because they're a much harder clean. Mm. And now the wet lubricants, you're not going to need to really worry about um, uh, your penetration issues. So pretty much, you know, it's a pretty poor wet lube that has a penetration issue. All your top wet lubes, especially like your Synergetic, they have zero penetration issues. Um, if it's just smooth or squirt, I really uh, would recommend... Uh, doing an immersive application, um, even though it's a bit of faffing around, it's not that bad. You just get like a 500 mil screw top container from your supermarket. Um, especially with smooth, you can actually pop the nozzle out of the bottle. You pour your smooth in, do your immersive application, um, get the chain out, wipe the excess, let it set overnight. And obviously you, you can then just with a little funnel, you pour your smooth back into the bottle, pop the nozzle back on, and you, then you're okay if you're using that as your sort of lube to re-lube your training chain. So it's not that hard to do an immersive uh, lubrication with those lubes. Mm -hmm. They really should be stating that in their instructions, um, but they don't because obviously it's not it's, – it's just, it's just a marketing thing. If they say – if one of them says, look, you should do an immersive application and the other one doesn't, then people are going to buy the one that says, look, you're fine to just drip it on. But the reality is for both of those, you're really not fine to just drip it on. So um, – <laughs> Doing the doing the heating of the chain and heating the lubricant, it helps, it, but it doesn't fully negate the penetration issue. So, um, yeah, for your race chain, if you're using those lubricants, I would highly recommend uh, doing that. So it does vary a bit by what, yeah, lubricant choice. Some are super easy, some a little bit more work. But, um, again, 
your race chain is is going to be pretty easy to keep mint uh, at the end of the day because you've got time between races to do that that nice reset so uh whereas your training chain you know might be a bit harder you just want to you know add lube and, and go so and if you're investing in an ultrasonic cleaner how would this impact the the process and what what benefit um, like for those people considering investing in it, what additional yeah. benefit would there be? Andrew just really yeah. likes, uh, you know, new yeah. equipment and new tours. <laughs> yeah, <so laughs> yeah, reason to buy a cleaner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So ultrasonic cleaners are great, but uh, a lot of people don't, uh, I guess, just take that little bit of time to learn how to use them properly. So um, I guess step one of the learning with an ultrasonic is ultrasonic cleaners to do their proper clean. They actually work by billions of um, imploding bubbles uh, to do the scrubbing cleaning action and so you do need to what's called degas them so now some ultrasonics come with a degas button which makes it nice and easy because it's a bit like so um, if you imagine your fish, fish tank you've got an air bubbler in there to oxygenate the water so your fish can breathe when you pour your cleaning solution or solvent into your ultrasonic um, you have introduced a lot of air into your solution that you've poured into your tank and if you've got you know air or gas in your solution that's going to fill the bubbles that are trying to implode and they're not going to implode so you don't get that scrubbing action. So uh, you do have to do a degas run to basically get all the, uh, you know, the gas out of the solution that you want to use for cleaning and then it's going to be able to actually do its, its job properly. Otherwise, you just have to run it for a really long time uh, each round to get that, that proper clean. So uh, step one, degas. Um, and step two is do the bulk of the work first with uh, the container method. So be it you know, boiling water flush rinses if it's your refined waxes or immersive waxing or solvent cleaning if it's the other lubricants because a lot of people will go to putting their chain into their ultrasonic cleaner. Um, the cleaning solution or solvent goes black within the first sort of 10 or 20 seconds and nothing really good is happening after that point. Um, if what's cleaning the chain is dirty, you're just you're not you're not really cleaning it. So for all the time that you need really to, 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 to get to that, what you want your ultrasonic to do is to really get into all the tiny nooks and crannies and fissures that, you know, container, agitated container cleaning just won't get to. And an ultrasonic will do that. Um, it'll give you that. It's a marginal gain, but it will give you a marginal gain over your agitated container or just your flush cleaning. But you do need to do it properly. So do the heavy lifting first. When it's when you know, the, that sort of initial uh, solvent cleaning or hot water cleaning is coming out uh, basically as clean as when it went in, then it's time to move to the ultrasonic. So you do the degas run of your solution, which may change depending on what you're, again, what you're cleaning, and then put the chain in and give it a good run and it will get in there to, to do a, you know, that, that marginal gains better clean than what you will get with, um, with just container method. And the same goes for the application of the lubricant. Um, you can, a lot of lubricants, especially the top ones, will have, fancy friction modifier additives and the ultrasonic will get them in better versus just dripping it on or um, shaking it in a container. So it is a lot more faffing, a lot more time. Um, but for those that like to tinker and, uh, and like to, you know, sort of just, you know, go that, um, you know, to the absolute top degree, uh, then yeah, it, they are fun to play with. Um, there are some, I guess, cautions though. Um, be Like anything, you do get what you pay for. So if you buy you know, a, a six liter ultrasonic from AliExpress or Alibaba for, you know, $60. It's probably got a really, really low ultrasonic cleaning power. Um, and like a six liter ultrasonic isn't a great size for trying to clean a chain. It's, you've got to put so much fluid in there 
Um, so you're going to be faffing around now with having your separate thing to put your chain in and you're going to fill the rest up with water. It's going to need a massive degas run, especially if it's low power. So a lot of these ultrasonics will only be maybe 15 or 20 watts per litre of ultrasonic power. So they're a pretty low power um, unit for their size. Whereas if you get a really high quality unit that's like a one litre ultrasonic and it's like 50 to 70 watts of ultrasonic power per litre, then they're going to do a brilliant job. So um, And they'll degas really quickly. Um, so, yeah, you do get what you pay for. If you buy a really cheap ultrasonic, you're going to probably do a whole lot of extra faffing and, and it, it may not do that much better than a container clean. So, uh, And they can crap out fairly quickly as well. So do get people write in that they bought X mm-hmm. ultrasonic off, you know, a place and it looks exactly like a high-quality one because that's what they do. They do make them look exactly like the high-quality ones, but obviously what's inside them is, is pretty sort of junk. So... Um, and the other thing is, is if you're using a solvent, so if you're putting a flammable solvent into your ultrasonic, um, so if you're using your white spirits or mineral terps or something like that, which will do a brilliant clean um, in those final stages for your wet lube chains or your um, uh, smooth or squirt, I would personally do them outside because you've got possible flammable vapours and unshielded electronics. So just not something that you want to do in your uh, house. So, yeah. Uh, odds are low, odds are super low, but they're non-zero. Um, so take your <laughs> non-zero odds of flammable vapours and, and unshielded electronics and, and do them outside. And this is where, um, <laughs> yeah, this is where, uh, in, in a way, <laughs> UFO is great. The UFO clean, again, is, is brilliant um, because that'll work on pretty much all chains. Uh, it's just a bit more expensive using, if you're using it for wet loops because you've got more contamination to deal with. Um, so, but it's safe. Um, and environmentally friendly. And when we we're doing, so when we we're ultrasonic cleaning wax chains before, if you were doing like a full reoptimization reset and you wanted to use an ultrasonic cleaner, not many solvents really work on wax. So you did need a temperature control um, ultrasonic because you really needed the temperature of the solution to be above 60 degrees, which is above the wax melting point. Um, otherwise, it was, it was, you know, really tough to get that, that perfect clean. Um, but with UFO clean, because that works on waxes now, you can skip that whole thing of having to have a temp control ultrasonic which mm-hmm. you know really brings the prices of, of those units up quite a lot and you can just use a non-temp control just get a good power per liter decent quality unit um do the yeah bulk of the work with your either solvent rounds first in the container or boiling water rinses first depending on the lube then move to your ultrasonic for that final rounds and yeah ufo clean is, is a great one because you're not going to need to you know have a you know, flammable risk, it's environmentally friendly and whether it's wax or wet loop base, you're you're covered. So so that's a great product. It's obviously more expensive per litre than your mineral terps or white spirits, but it's got some great benefits. So, um, yeah, well worth a look there for the final rounds. Um, and, yeah, so it is it is a bit of fun. But, um, yeah, I do see a lot where someone literally they just buy an ultrasonic, yeah. they put their factory grease chain in, they run it for 10 minutes, they think it's done a magic clean. Uh, they put their wax lube on. It doesn't adhere at all because there's still a heavy film or a lot of grease or whatever was left on the chain uh, left behind. Um, they, they, you know, the, the wax lube or coating just doesn't bond at all. They get 20k down the road and their chain feels and sounds horrible. Um, you know, or they've just sort of thrown it in and yeah, after 10 seconds they're cleaning it with dirty solution and it's it's not a great clean. So so they're the common errors that that people make. I'm just going through my head thinking the uh, the conversation you might have with your insurance company saying, I burnt down my house <laughs> doing bike maintenance. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so. I, I haven't heard of one catching fire, but 
it's just yeah, it's just a general i guess logic warning uh that yeah you wouldn't typically want to have flammable vapors inside your house because the the ultrasonics that the if you put say mineral turps or white spirits in and you've got a, a decent power ultrasonic uh you can put it in it can be 20 degrees you run it for 20 minutes that uh that that mineral turps or white spirits will get to 40 or 50 degrees from the, the capitation happening inside the ultrasonic Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you've got a, a solvent like that, 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 that temperature, it is going to be releasing uh, a decent amount of vapour. Um, and those vapours are not something you really you want inside your house either. Um, and yeah, you just mm-hmm. don't want flammable, flammable vapours anywhere near uh, electronic switches or <laughs> open electronics. So um, yeah, I haven't heard of it happening. But yeah, just as a general logic, if you're using solvents in an ultrasonic, yeah, definitely outside. Um, yeah, or if you've got a shed, uh, and it's all concrete, then you're fine. But just just be aware of obviously vapors, just from a you know uh, an aspiration point of view. It's just not something you want to be breathing in either. So yeah, yeah. So they're great fun, but yeah, I do have I do have um, an ultrasonic and race chain guide uh, on the website. So um, as, this is actually my third attempt at it because I, I have in the past, or actually even in the present, I've had trouble trying to run through both i guess normal ultrasonic i guess cleaning and maintenance covering wax lubes and wet lubes and then also re-optimizing your race chains um with wax lubes or wet lubes and the differences and covering the ultrasonic cleaning versus container in a concise and logical stepped out pattern um the first few guides i've put up have been really clunky and a bit all over the place as i've tried to cover those aspects uh this this final crack at it that i've had uh, my last project week this final guide is is hopefully um a lot better so uh because yeah it is a question i guess i'm I'm getting you know i get emails pretty much every day from people asking about ultrasonic cleaning and race (laughs) chains and so hopefully finally (laughs) i've I've finally got a a guide that's not so clunky uh up on the website for people to sort of be able to just read through all of what we've covered there and also, mm-hmm. it'll be on one of the uh, YouTube videos out fairly soon um, that we'll be covering as well, where I sort of step through that sort of race chain and ultrasonic cleaning guide as well. So uh, people will be able to, if they stay tuned to the Zero Friction Cycling sort of yeah, instructions tab and, and YouTube channel, they'll they'll see that covered uh, sort of step by step as well. Awesome. That's and uh, I think Adam, this is a, a great place to to wrap up the conversation because. Uh, you know, it's a nice segue to to the YouTube channel and to to the guides and uh, listeners. As I mentioned previously, uh, I've read through some of Adam's uh, guides, and I I currently use his his method for uh, hot waxing. Um, and uh, I'm a, you know I'm a fan. It's one of the reasons he's on the show right now. And we will we will of course link to those guides. And uh, Adam, I've got so many questions. I was kind of jotting stuff down on the phone as as we went along yeah. for for follow up conversations, stuff like you know. Um, with uh, with other components that we never even got to, yeah. you know, the, the, the non-chain yeah, components, yeah. which, you know, contribute to drivetrain. But as you say, of course, aren't as 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 important as the chain. And uh, listeners, I hope you uh, you got a lot out of this because I certainly lo- learned a bunch of stuff like uh, the boiling water flush. I never I never thought to do that for uh, for uh, treating my my uh, hot hot melt wax chain after you know after wet rides or prepping it for the next application so uh adam this has been excellent um other than youtube and the website uh should people be following you in any other way are you on social uh i I am but i uh due to time so things are just really busy on both the testing front and the the retail side so um my sort of one-man band hobby business plan um has 
sort of gone a bit past that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, I, I do, uh, I guess, latest news updates. Um, so I'll put out the latest news of sort of uh, what's happening um, and, you know, covering whatever sort of the latest friction news is on various fronts, be it um, a particular product release or a product test that's uh, been completed. Um, as well as various other things going on. So uh, the latest news section on the website, um, and I'm also obviously trying to continually update and improve the, uh, the guides and instructions uh, in the instructions tab. Um, and so I do, um, when I do an update on the latest news section, I do basically release that on uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook. Um, and yeah, now I've also okay. launched the, uh, the YouTube channel to try to get some of the content that is currently covered in you know, many, many page documents in the instructions tab actually just covered out on, on video, which, um, yeah, a lot of people just don't want to obviously read a 20 page document. So, um, yeah, so just keep check, checking <laughs> in with the channel. I'm terrible at, um, getting back to or covering, uh, comments and questions on social media, um, because they come in from all angles and yeah, it's literally, it's currently like 12 hours a day, um, pumping, uh, through trying to keep up with both the testing and the retail. And an inbox, I can I can work my way. Like I can start at the yeah. bottom every day and work my way up. Um, whereas, yeah, questions and inquiries that come through, um, like on Instagram, Facebook, Messenger, Pages Manager, uh, comments and things, and uh, I just really struggle to stay on top of those channels. Um, so if if you ever send me a message um, and I don't reply, uh, it's just been lost in that sort of social media wormhole uh, that I'm not very good at. And so the the best way, if you've got uh, a, especially a detailed question, um, is just yeah to send an email through, and then I can sort of just work my way up through the inbox each day. Um, uh, but most of the stuff, so most of the questions, especially around waxing, that makes sense. Yeah. But before you do that, listeners, yeah, read the uh, go through the guides and the and the stuff first. So we are, having, I am having a bit of fun at the moment because zero friction cycling has become yeah sorry a bit synonymous with waxing around the world. I do get a lot of emails from all around the world and. Um, 99% of the questions in those emails are covered in the guides and it is getting to a point where it's really, really hard to sort of respond to all those uh, emails. So, um, yeah, I'm doing my best, but there will be a point where I think pretty soon I'll have to refer people to, say, the video or to the, the guides in the first instance and then sort of come back uh, if it's not covered there. So, yeah, one, one, one guy, I can only do so much at the moment. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, but, uh, yeah, just physically run out of hours in the day. So, yeah. And I will say from my point of view, if there's if there's one thing I learned, it's that I don't know anything about chains and I was doing everything wrong. So <laughs> that is to say, everything you've said has been a learning experience for me. So this is, uh, I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners are very much in the same position where this information is just completely invaluable. And the magnitude of the change, thinking, yes, an optimized chain may be 2% of your, 2 to 3% of your overall drivetrain loss or your overall losses there. Um, but a non-optimized chain is going to be significantly higher and costing you, uh, yeah, 10 to 15 watts extra on top of the optimized chain. That's just yeah. incredible. And thinking like, if I could unlock that 10 to 15 watts by training, I would gladly do that. So yeah, absolutely. Well, train, these... chain preparation seems like such a no-brainer. Yeah, these days with the top lubricants, like, like honestly, the fastest chains and the top lubricants, you know, getting sort of around that three watt loss mark, it, it's actually getting pretty close to, you know, that that 1% uh, efficiency, um, you know, we're sort of, you, you can get to that sort of probably 1.5% efficiency rate for most people fairly easily if you're either buying a fully optimized race chain or doing a really great job with fully optimizing yourself, or at worst, you're going to be maybe around the 2% uh, 
uh, efficiency mark. And the main thing, I guess, to remember is that, yeah, the the losses, the penalty for the losses are scalable to load. So the, obviously the higher the load, so the stronger the rider you are, the more losses you're going to have. And, you know, the I guess you're going to have greater penalties when you start to introduce more friction. So if you've got a really low friction chain, your losses for, say, running big, big to get over a hill and you don't want to change, um, you know, down a chain ring, if your chain is super fast, your, your penalty for running, you know, that big, big is going to be quite small. If your chain is, you know, running a quite, a, you know, abrasive high friction lubricant, mm-hmm. then the penalty for running big, big and introducing all that extra loading on all those other components is going to be quite high. So, um, yeah, it's just that it, it, there really is just so much low-hanging fruit lot savings in something as simple as just paying attention to your chain and lubricant. And, um, yeah, yeah, more and more people now are obviously really uh, becoming aware of that and it's great as, you know, sort of more podcasts like yourself are sort of helping put the spotlight and the focus on that. It's just yeah, just such an easy win-win for the for the cyclists out there, you know, training super hard for their key races and uh, for sure. were possibly, yeah, before throwing away a three-month block of FTP trainings worth just in their chain loop without, you know, sort of knowing about it. So, and, and it was costing them in their component wear as well. So, <laughs> yeah, more focus on it like this. It's uh, obviously, yeah, yeah, great, great from my side. So for anyone listening who might be racing Ironman Arizona, um, disregard everything that was said because I don't want you to be faster as well. So, but uh, no, I think this is this has been such fantastic information, um, and it's it's really been eye opening for me. And I know one of the first things I'm going to do after we finish this conversation is go and read all of your guides and make sure that I'm doing everything I can. First of all, to find a chain given the supply chain issues, um, but uh, yeah, it's. It, just the the lubrication steps and dedicating that race chain. I thought I was doing a decent job by cleaning the chain before every event and like doing a thorough off bike cleaning, but it sounds like I wasn't. (laughs) No, I definitely not race. So yeah. Or or go and buy one of, one of Adam's, one of Adam's optimized chains for your for Arizona. I think I may do that. that so, yeah. yeah, depending. Yeah, because then because then at least that first step, you're 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 pretty you're you're taken care yeah, of. Yeah, I think like on a final wrap on the optimized race chains, they are I guess a marginal gain. So a fully optimized race chain. So for for all that work um, with the the break in and then all the extra ultrasonic cleaning rounds that that takes post break in uh, and then you know say so ultrasonic in the lubricant in and then if it's a wax that you're doing the the wax break in run. Uh, it can be an easy extra hour, hour and a half of, uh, of labor time to do a full uh, race optimization versus really, really uh, not much time at all just to do your sort of standard uh, clean and, and wax or standard clean and lube. Uh, and you do all that work for, uh, you know, on average probably about, you know, you'll get a chain say that's maybe a watt faster versus um, not doing that and, and still using a top lube or top wax. So, um, but what you I guess you're paying a lot of extra money for that one watt. So a fully optimized race chain is probably going to cost you somewhere around $100 or maybe more um, versus just getting that uh, chain as is. And really you're paying obviously for all that that labor time. Um, but especially if you're keeping that chain as a dedicated race chain, dedicated yeah, race chain, it's going to obviously stay that one watt faster pretty much throughout its its you know lifespan as your dedicated race chain. So a lot of people think as, as that race chain is like a really expensive one-off spend for their, um, you know, particular event. And do they want to spend, you know, $200 or so on a chain for one event? Um, but really having the knowledge on, you know, and it's really quite simple knowledge once they, they just sort of take the time just to read it and get on top of it, you know, 
they can just do such a great re-optimization of that and reset of that chain at home uh, ready for the next race. So I guess it's, you know, that chain or race chain is going to be an investment for, you know, a lot of races. You, you should be getting at least sort of around 1,500 kilometres out of your race chain if you're resetting it after every sort of couple of hundred k's of racing um, before it's going to really start to, you know, have any efficiency losses. And by that time, normally, by the time most people have done 1,500 k's of racing, normally they're due for a new training chain. And so it just moves over to be their next uh, training chain and get one, yeah, one new race chain. So um, away they go and it's yeah, just such a, an easy, easy saving for race day. Amazing. This is uh, this has been such a such a wealth of information, Adam. Uh, I thank you for your time again, and uh, listeners, as as we've mentioned, all of the links uh, to the the resources that Adam has mentioned will be will be in our show notes. Um, and uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what we've talked about today, if you've learned something, and I w- you, li- you know what, I- I'm going to challenge. I'm going to give you guys a challenge. If you learn nothing in this uh, in this uh, conversation. First of all, I think you're you're not telling the truth, and if you are, I want you to uh, I want you to send me a note because then you will be our next guest for uh, for drivetrain optimization on the Endurance Innovation Podcast. If you have if you didn't learn anything in this conversation, um, but if you have, which I like, I jokingly imagine most of you have, uh, tell tell a friend, uh, share the spread, help us spread the word about Endurance Innovation and what we do here. Uh, give us a rating and a review on Apple iTunes, and um, consider also supporting us on patreon and that's at patreon.com slash endurance innovation and with that i think uh adam one more time and thank you all for listening and uh we'll be back next week and thanks yeah michael andrew very much for having me on and yeah putting the, the spotlight on my favorite little niche area so yeah thank you very much 